I had the privilege, this is the introduction, I had the privilege yesterday of going to the Gaither. Somebody invited us and uh, uh, fed us and took us, and so it was interesting. And I learned some corny jokes that you will be, that you will be hearing in the future. So. <laughs> the best one I liked is that he was accused of losing his train of thought and he said, I didn't lose my train of thought, I just lost interest. And so, <laughs> I may use that on you. It probably won't work for Donna. I won't use that on Donna. It, ha- it happens sometimes, but I'm not going to say it happens. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Pray with me. And we're going to jump right in. No preliminaries this morning. We're, we're going to jump right in. Well, one preliminary. Jerry Voorhees is back with us this morning. So... <clears throat> You'll say a word? <laughs> well, we're grateful you're here. We prayed for you, and, uh, and we, we love you. Glad you're here. All right, we've come to the end of the book of Mark, and uh, we've come to almost every, every week I say this is important. This is, this is one of the most important things, and it is. We've come to the resurrection. And before we actually look at the book of Mark, I want to talk about the theology of the resurrection. Uh, I want to do that before you doze off this morning. So I want you to get the theology before you get the details. So pray with me, please. Our Father, we thank you as we bow before you this morning that you have loved us, and we thank you as we have gone through uh, the study of the book of Mark that Lord, you have revealed to us the depth of your love in that, uh, Lord, Christ's willingness to, to suffer and to, uh, Lord, be mocked and to bear our sin. And, uh, Lord, we'll never understand the depth of the agony that he endured uh, to bear our sin. We, we get just a glimpse, and, but in our humanness, we'll just never grasp the, uh, the depth of it. And so, uh, Lord, we want to praise you and we want to honor you. We want to exalt your name because of your grace. And so I pray this morning that you might help us as we think about the resurrection. And Lord, we uh, would have a great assurance and Lord, we would have a great uh, even enthusiasm about what you're going to do one day because of the resurrection of Christ. And it might increase our faith in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start in the book of Job. Did I, did I give you that? Okay, I, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the book of Job, and uh, <clears throat> Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written first, and if you, if, let me just give you a little history. You know, you go back into Genesis, and you find that uh, Adam and Eve's boys came to worship, and they came to worship uh, at an altar, so God had revealed to them a mode of worship. God had revealed to them himself and the, and the progress and program of worship. We don't have that information. When you come to the book of Job, this predates Abraham and the covenant with the Jews. It predates the giving of the ceremonial law and the worship, all, all those things. But Job was a worshiper. And, uh, and Job offered sacrifices and prayed for his children, if you remember, and, and so God had revealed himself to every generation. So God has made himself known, and God has made the idea known of that 
you, you worship and you, you come with sacrifice uh, because you can't justify yourself, so you come with sacrifice and you offer worship. And so, again, we don't know how God did that. We know from reading Romans chapter 1 that God has revealed himself to every person that has ever lived. Uh, he, re- he reveals himself through the creation, uh, Psalm 19, then he reveals himself uh, by some other measure that every person is without an excuse. And it says that when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but became vain in their imagination and glorified the creature rather than the creator. So when they knew God, so every person that's ever lived is without excuse. They know there is a God. Excuse me. They they may not have direct revelation about... um, but they have, they have, they know God to the extent that they know they're accountable to Him, and uh, it causes. Let me just go and give my opinion. It causes every person to have a fear of death and judgment, and uh, most uh, most people in our culture deny it. Most people in our culture deny having a fear, but it's true, and it's true for everyone. It doesn't matter, <clears throat> you know, who they are. It doesn't matter what they believe about Christ. They have a fear of death, unless you know Christ and believe in the resurrection, unless you know that when this body dies, this is not all, that I'm alive and I'm going to live in the presence of Christ. So this is what Job said, Job 19, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Now listen, he's calling, this is, this is all the biblical theology. Job has given us all of biblical theology. Christ is the Redeemer. God is his Redeemer. And he's saying, um, I, I, I know that he, he exists, he's there, and I know also he's my Redeemer. I know that he will stand at last on the earth, that he's going to rule and reign on the earth that's the millennial kingdom and then eternity. And then he says this in verse 26, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Isn't that interesting? Now, Job doesn't have the revelation that we have from the Scripture. He doesn't have the New Testament. But Job understood <clears throat> Job understood that, that God was going to resurrect him one day. He understood that God was going to stand on the earth, which, and to do that, he's, he has a human body, and he understood that he's going to stand in his flesh long after the skin worms have destroyed his body. He's going to stand in his flesh on the earth as well. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, so, so God has always revealed himself. He's always revealed his program of salvation. It is through redemption uh, by that he provides himself. And it is through a resurrection that we have eternal life. So now I want to go with you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is called the resurrection chapter. If you attend many funerals, you hear this a lot at funerals. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and and verse uh, 12, what is the significance of the resurrection? So why is it important? Why is it important to us? And in verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached 
that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. It means there's no substance to it. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, which simply means they don't exist anymore if there's no resurrection. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men or all mankind the most pitiable, the most to be pitied because we have a false hope, because we have a hope of eternal life and it's not true if Christ has not risen from the dead. And then verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And in that verse, when he says, by man came death, he is speaking of um, the curse of sin. By Adam came death. Uh, Sin entered the world and and sin passed upon all mankind and all men, uh, all mankind became under the curse of death. That's what he's speaking about there. Then in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's a Jewish term, and and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. You read in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, um, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. So how, how do we have an eternal uh, assurance that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he, he exists with power, power within himself, power of God, is because of the resurrection. We, we went through Mark, we saw continually Jesus said that he'd, he would die, he would be buried, he'd be, but he would rise again the third day. The disciples were having trouble grasping it. It wasn't something that they understood. They didn't have Paul's writing. They didn't know uh, the theological detail. They had, they had uh, what Job had said, but they had no experience of that. Before they walked with Christ, they had never seen anyone raised from the dead. No one had. They, they just had no experience of that at all. And so when they were hearing it from Christ, the, the first thing, they didn't understand he was going to die. And then they couldn't understand uh, if, if he died, then he was going to be resurrected. So they just didn't, they didn't process it at all. And so consequently, when he died, they were fearful. And they, remember, were gathered together in, uh, in, in Jerusalem, and they were fearful of the Jews. They were fearful for their own lives. They were probably talking among themselves, what do we do now? How do we proceed? Uh, if, if Christ was our Messiah, then then. What, what are we going to do? And I don't doubt that they talked among themselves and said, well, remember, he told us he's going to rise from the dead. And then someone would say, but how? How can he do that? How, what, what process is there for that? And so they, they were uh, confounded about 
what had, ha- what had happened. Go on with me in 1 Corinthians 15 down to verse 47. In verse 47, we read this. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Interesting, isn't it? I'm a man of dust. You're, you're a person of dust. Man or woman, you're a person of dust. We were made from the dust of the earth. Uh, so, well, I, not me, I was made in my mother's womb, but uh, it, it's the same. You're, your body's going to return to the dust one day, <clears throat> and you're, you're made basically of, of earthly materials. All the composition of your body is just earthly materials. And so he's saying that there's, but, but Christ then is the heavenly man, and we born this image, and we're going to bear his image one day. And what is his image? Eternal. It's eternal, it's majestic, it is without sin, and we're going to bear that image one day. And then he says this in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Think with me for a moment. When Adam and Eve sinned, God drove them from the garden, and he put an angel there with a flaming sword not to let them back into the garden. <clears throat> now why? Because even though he had redeemed them, they had a picture of redemption, he slew the uh, animals and clothed them with the animal skin, which is a, a, a picture of redemption by blood. But had they come back into the garden while the garden existed, had they come back into the garden and eaten of the tree of life in a fallen state, they would have had to live eternally in a fallen state. Okay, so they would have never had a redemptive body uh, like we're going to have when we uh, are resurrected at the coming of Christ or after, uh, well, whether we're alive or dead at the coming of Christ, we're going to have a resurrected body. This is what Paul means when he's saying that incorruption cannot inherit uh, corruption... Okay, let me, let me just read it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor doth corruption inherit incorruption. You, you're not going to dwell, we're never going to, we cannot dwell in the presence of God, the, the holy God who is without sin. We can never dwell in his presence in this flesh that is cursed by sin, in this flesh that has the residue of sin. Now, Today I'm forgiven. I, I pray you're forgiven and, and that you understand that and you understand the freedom and the grace that brings to you. But we still have this, we still have the residue of sin. I'm still a sinner. I still, I, I tell you that regularly, I, I still struggle with the issues of the flesh, with the issues of the spirit, and, and I can't dwell in the presence of God in this corruption. God has to remake it one day. And so whether whether I, I die and I'm resurrected at the coming of Christ at the rapture, or whether I'm alive and I, I'm resurrected at the coming of Christ at the rapture, and my body's changed into a body like in his body, then I can dwell in his presence because there is no corruption, because I have been given a new body. You've been given a new body. That's what he's talking about here. And he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed 
In a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. I, that's some of the most powerful scripture in the New Testament. Um, you know, when you go through it fast in your daily reading, it, it's like you're hearing these phrases thrown back and forth like a ping pong ball, and unless you stop to think about it, you don't grasp the meaning of it. But, but the, 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 the meaning of it is the resurrection of Christ has to take place for our own resurrection because we would never be able to dwell in the presence of God without a resurrected body, without a body that has been changed by the resurrection. That's the theological significance of what we do, of, of what's going to happen. So look in verse 55, and uh, we'll continue. It says... Uh, verse 54, uh, so when this corruption has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Hades is the grave. Hades is the, the, the ceasing of all life. And he's saying, that there is, if, if death is all there is, then death has the victory. And then he says, but death is swallowed up in victory, verse 54. And then he says this in verse 56. He explains that saying, and he says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Okay, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of death is sin. I said to you earlier, should have waited until now. I said to you earlier that every person has the sting of death because of sin. Every person knows they're a sinner. Now, we justify, and un, people who are unbelievers, they justify, they say, they justify it by saying there is no God, there is no morality. Morality is whatever I choose. Morality is whatever is good for me. Morality is whatever our society says morality is. And there is no moral code given to us by a God who doesn't exist. So it's easy for them to say that, but the truth is, in their inner being, they have a fear of death. Now why? They have a fear of death because, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now what is the law? The law is saying that God's given a moral code, and here's the moral code, and that's the law. Now we always think about the Jewish law, but Paul teaches us in Romans that the Jews had the moral law written down for them, but the Gentiles have it written in their heart. When, when I was a kid growing up, I had a moral law written in my heart. I didn't go to church, but I had a moral law written in my heart. Part of it was written there by my mother. Part of it was written there by my teachers. Part of it was written there by my conscience. We have a conscience that is God speaking to us about the moral law, His moral law. And, and that is with, with us. I felt guilty when I sinned. And we can excuse our guilt. We can try to justify our guilt. But it is there. And by the way, it's still there. Even though we're Christians, it's still there. And, you're, and we're much better off. Start to say you, but I should say we. We're much better off when we, instead of justifying it, we confess it. We just say, Lord, I did that. I'm sorry. That's wrong. I, I did that to this person. I did that because I'm selfish. I did that because I'm self-centered. Lord, I didn't give. I, I didn't care. I, I didn't do anything because 
that's who I am. I am a sinner, and I'm sorry, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. You know what? When you do that, you're cleansed. You're forgiven. If you justify it, you live with it. If you justify it, you, you, you live with it, and you never have forgiveness, even though Christ will take you to heaven when you die. So, that's a very important verse in the Scripture. The sting, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the victory. Thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us, that you have given us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now back to Mark. So that is the theological importance of the resurrection. You can't have anything more important than that other than the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. But it all goes together. When Paul gives, the, in the first part of Corinthians, which we didn't read, when Paul gives the gospel, he, he includes all of it. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And so, Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come to anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So very quickly, we're going to go through this. The women came to the tomb after the Sabbath had passed. There was a, a, a holy Sabbath, the Passover. There's the weekly Sabbath. So that's why three days passed from his death. And that they couldn't come because it, it was unlawful for them to come on the Sabbath. So on a probably on a Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, on, on that uh, Saturday evening they purchased spices and then they come on Sunday morning and they're going to anoint his body for burial. Evidently they didn't know that Joseph of Arimathea had already anointed him already taken spices and anointed or something. So anyway, they come to show respect. They, they didn't embalm a body, but they anointed it to keep it from smelling as it putrefied. We don't like to think about that, but that, that takes place. So Matthew reports to us, we won't take the time to read it, that an angel had come, maybe this very same angel, had rolled away the stone um, and it frightened the guards when they did that, first they were immobilized. Later they come to an awareness and they go and report to the high priests, what, the Jewish elders, what had happened. Um, I, I just throw in this. When they saw the angels, uh, when, the, when the guards saw the angels, they were petrified. Uh, they, uh, when, when these women saw the angel, they were frightened. I, I, I read sometimes and you hear on television, people say they converse with angels. Some, one, one pastor said that he talks with the angel every morning while he's shaving. Well, he is either lying or he's talking with a demon, one or the other. If he's speaking with an angel, he'd be flat on his face, scared, like all the people were in the Bible record. Uh, so they're not 
conversing with that. Never, never buy that stuff. Never buy those books where people say they went to heaven and now they come back to life. That is totally nonsense. That's just my opinion, by the way. <clears throat> and I'm kind of neutral about that. You understand? So <clears throat> that was a joke. So <clears throat> when we read this here about um, the angel's message, I want you to think about this and just uh, to be real honest. Um, he said in verse 7, But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Okay, so the Lord has said to them he would see them in Galilee after his raised from the dead. So we're wondering, okay, but he begins to see them now in, in Jerusalem. We're going to look at some of those instances. So what does it mean that when the angel says he'll see you in, in, in Galilee? Well, the angel knew that that was the program and that that would be where Jesus would spend these 40 days of ministry after his resurrection. It would be in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, uh, because Jerusalem had rejected him, but Galilee had accepted him, and he that's where most of the disciples were from, that area, and uh, where most of his works were done. And so he's going to go there and minister to them and teach them a little more and encourage them before his ascension. So the angel understood that this ministry was going to take place in Galilee. But probably to get the disciples to go there, the Lord had to appear to them uh, to, to get them to understand that he was resurrected. They may never have left Jerusalem or never have, have left the, uh, where they could go and observe the, the tomb. So he said, go, go tell them. And then the next appearance, and we're just going to look at them quickly. Jesus appears to Mary. uh, That's in John chapter 20 and verse 14. So let's read it quickly. Now when um, Mary is weeping, Jesus said, go to the tomb, didn't find him, verse 11. Down to verse 13, uh, they said to her, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord. Verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now, here there's a little bit of confusion. Now, he appeared to Mary. Uh, he, when she first saw him, she didn't recognize him. But, but he, um, it wasn't that he didn't have a body. I, she just didn't, maybe she wasn't expecting him or whatever. But when he spoke to her, she recognized his voice, and she, she understood who it was. Then maybe she paid attention at that point who it was. Um, but he said to her, I haven't ascended to my father. And, you know, I, I read a lot of different theologians' uh, idea about that, and it's just a little uncertain what he meant to, to us. Uh, had, had, was he going to ascend to the father and, and then come back and meet with the disciples, which he's going to do probably this very day, um, we, we understand theologically that when he 
ascends to the Father, he takes his blood sacrifice and goes to the Holy of Holies in heaven, which is a the real thing. The temple Holy of Holies was a copy of the real thing. And the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer the blood of bulls or goats uh, upon the altar. And Hebrews tells us that they can never take away sin. But when Christ enters with his own blood into the holy place in heaven, that it once forever, once forever took away sin. Which, let me repeat again, which does away with the Catholic Mass. It once forever took away sin. And so, at some point in time, he ascends into heaven. Now, I want you to think, we're going to read in a moment, or we're going to, I'm going to talk to you in a moment, Jesus appears to the side. He just appears. They're, in a, they're, they're gathered together, maybe the upper room. They're gathered together, and he appears in their midst. And the wording is meant, he didn't come through the door. He just shows up. He's just there. Now, if he can do that, he can go into the presence of God in an instant. Are you with me? I mean, he is God. He, he is God. He doesn't even have to transport his body there. He just says, it is mine here, and he's there. It's like science fiction to us. I can't do that. You can't do that. We can watch it on television, but you, we can't do that. But he can. And so could, he have, could after he spoke to Mary, he ascended into heaven, and then in a few minutes later he's going to meet two other disciples? Yes, absolutely. There, there's no, there, there is no conflict there at all. There, there doesn't have to be time frame. God does not have time frame. You understand that? We live in time frame. God doesn't live in time frame. Hard for us to grasp that. He is outside of time frame. Jesus in his humanity lived in time frame. Jesus in his deity exists outside of time frame. So he goes to the Father, presents his blood as the Final sacrificial offering, never again there need to be a sacrificial offering for sin, and never again does the mass become the body and blood of Christ, never again. And so it's over, it's done, uh, there's no Jewish practices, there's no Judaism, Judaism ended, and they just didn't quit practicing until they destroyed the temple, uh, the Romans destroyed the temple. So Jesus goes, and he says, tell my brethren... And I, I want you to look at that again when we read that. And Jesus says, go and tell my brethren. What? Those guys who ran away? <laughs> Those guys who forsook him? Isn't that amazing? Um, I've run away a few times. I've forsaken him. But he calls me his brother. There's a progression in the Gospels. He calls them friends. He calls them disciples. And now he calls them brethren. They're his brethren. <clears throat> we're adopted into the family of God. That's, that's the theology we're reading here. I, I, I am a child of God. You're a child of God. You're my brother or sister in Christ. And it's never dependent upon our worth. It's never dependent. It's never uh, diminished by the depth of our sin. It's, it's never, you know, it's really interesting to me. I don't know if I put it in the notes. We'll get to it in a minute. But it's really interesting to me that he says, go and tell Peter and the disciples who had sinned most grievously against him. Peter had. Because Peter had denied him publicly. The others ran away, but they didn't deny him. They didn't curse and deny him 
and Peter had. And the Lord says to him, go and tell Peter. Go and tell Peter that I'm resurrected and I'll see him. And, and so Spurgeon said um, that the grievousness of your sin never will cancel God's grace when you come to him. Uh, he, over, he will forgive that. He overlooks that. He doesn't bear a resentment. I've never had an argument with anybody like I have with my wife. Have you? Maybe you have. Maybe you have people in your life you work with or in your neighborhood and you just got roaring mad. I never have got roaring mad at anybody. It's my wife who I, I, that I get more aggravated at than anybody, not because of her character, not because of what she does, but because so I have so many expectations from her for my own glory. And I don't know how to explain that, but but, but you understand, sometimes when you have an argument, and I don't mean to, I'm not demeaning my wife. I, I, all this, I mean, she's God's grace to me. <laughs> I don't know why it makes me emotional, but, 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 but you understand what I'm saying to you, what I should have just said outright. Sometimes we have an argument with people, and we ask for forgiveness, and the argument's over, but we bear a little bit of resentment. Would you admit that? Well, some of you would admit that. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> the Lord doesn't do that. The Lord doesn't do that. When you ask forgiveness, you're, you're forgiven. First John 1 John 1.9, he, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. When we ask for forgiveness, he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And he... And he, and he and he says that, it's proven, he says, tell Peter, tell Peter, and my brethren, they're my brethren. They forsook me, they ran away, they denied me, but they're my brethren. We're his brethren. We've been adopted into his family. He did it. He did it. All the glory goes to him. And we are the recipients of his mercy and his grace and his love and, and it's, it's, just, it's just as full for you as it is for me and for Charles Spurgeon and any other person that's ever lived, the Apostle Paul. The Lord is uh, gracious toward you as, toward, as it was toward any other person that's ever lived. He is your brother in Christ. Now, he's Christ, we're not, but he is your brother in Christ and, and God. And he cares about you. He cares about the forgiveness of your sin and the restoration of your life and your ministry. Um, and so uh, when I read that, I'm just overwhelmed with, with gratitude that the Lord has that spirit toward us. And it makes me desire to have that spirit toward my wife and my family and toward you and all those that are in my life. So go tell my disciples, go tell my brethren, an old writer named Bishop Hall wrote this. He said, It is not in the power of the sins of our infirmity to unbrother us. You're never going to be unbrothered. You're, Christ is always going to be your brother, regardless of your failing, regardless of your sin. Now, that's not a word that you use. My computer wouldn't let me type that without it underlining it, saying that's wrong. But God's never going to unbrother you. You're never going to lose your salvation. You're never going to lose the grace that he has extended to you. And then I love this story that you're familiar with. Luke recounts the story 
of Jesus meeting with the two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem, and they're on their way to Emmaus. And uh, you, you're familiar with the story. It's in Luke chapter 24. We, I, we won't read it this morning, but uh, just uh, let me just remind you of it. So he, he meets them and he says to them, why are you downcast? And why are they downcast? They're downcast because, and they said to him, are you a stranger here? Do you not know what's happened in these days? And we thought Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And, and he was our hope. And, and probably they'd been listening to him. They'd been going to the temple area where he taught. Uh, and, and, and maybe they had followed him to other things and seen some of the miracles that he'd done. And they thought he was their hope. And now he's dead. And they say that to Jesus. That's why we're downcast, because our hope is gone. We don't, I mean, it's over. And whatever we'd hoped for is no more. It is, it is over. And, and I'm going to read, so we're not going to read that story, but I want to read what he says to them, which is very significant. So it's Luke chapter 24, and go to verse 25. Luke 24 and verse 25, and Jesus says to them these words, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. All the prophets have spoken. All the Old Testament, all the prophets have spoken about this. Job spoke about this. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And at the beginning, at, in the beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All the scriptures, Moses and the prophets. And then on another occasion, Jesus said that he included the, the Psalms. Uh, they speak of me, he said. All the Bible speaks of Christ. And so he goes in with them, the rest of the story. Uh, and when he sits down with them, and uh, he was revealed to them in the breaking of bread. Uh, and then they go back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples, and they're not believed. When the women go tell the disciples, they're not believed. Uh, when Mary tells the disciples, she's not believed. When, when um, these disciples go back and said, we saw him, we walked with him, we talked with him, they, they do not believe. It is too unbelievable for Christ to be resurrected. <clears throat> um, in our humanness, it's hard to have faith. Is it not? I, I, I've been saved for 50 years and I have trouble with my faith. I, I have trouble with uh, believing all that I know and read, and you say, but don't you, either you believe it or you don't. Well, I do believe it, and I confess I believe it. Sometimes I don't live it out. Sometimes I, I revert to self. I revert to trusting what I see with my eyes instead of what I, I know is scriptural truth, and you probably do the same thing. We struggle with our faith, and the disciples struggle with their faith. Next record, we have Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 33. He appears to all the disciples collectively in Jerusalem. Uh, verse 33, they rose up, they go back to Jerusalem. Uh, they tell the disciples, verse 34, the Lord's risen again, appeared to Simon. So somewhere in there, he appeared to Peter by himself. Um, and then he said, 
He appeared to Simon in verse 35, and they told us about the things that happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposing that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So I hope you learn the Lord in his resurrection has flesh and bones. Now, it's not a flesh that is subject to sin in in Christ's resurrected body. But he's, he's saying to them, that you're seeing me in my resurrected body, and I'm real. I'm not a spirit. Spirits don't have flesh and bone. And then he asked for a piece of fish, or a piece of food, and they gave him a piece of fish, and he ate it in their presence. So what are we going to be after, we talked about that this morning before class, because we went through this on Wednesday night, if you were here, when I did that summary of the book of Revelation. <laughs> And what a revelation is you could do that in 45 minutes. But um, when we went through that summary, we talk about the resurrection. What, what is our resurrected bodies? And your, and your resurrected body is a body just like this without the curse of sin. You say, okay, Jerry, am I going to look 35 or I'm going to look 75? Which is it going to be? You won't care. It doesn't matter. You won't care. Uh, you'll look like yourself, you'll look like God made you, you'll be perfectly satisfied. You look in the mirror and you will see the reflection of someone made in the image of God. But I will know you, and you will know me, and, and we won't be changed other than the fact that we have a body like unto his body, and we will never be subject to the curse of sin. So, so we will dwell in his presence. So when does that happen? How does that happen? If, you, if your loved ones that died in Christ, if they died in Christ, they were saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ, and they died in Christ, their body is in the grave today, their spirit is with the presence of the Lord. And we talked about that this morning with <clears throat> earlier about, okay, what is that spirit? How is that spirit known? And I, I think it is, a, it is a body, but it's not your final body. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transformed, the glory of God comes within him, out of him, and, and it, it, it reveals him as deity. That, that's what happened. His, his body wasn't transformed, it's just the, the awareness of his deity is the transformation. And Moses and Elijah come from the dead and appear there with him. They come from wherever they are and appear there with him. And the disciples recognize them. They recognize them. And Peter said, let's build three booths and uh, stay here. And a spirit doesn't need a booth. Okay, the booth was a, what they did in the ceremony. They know what they're talking about. What they did in their ceremony is they built a booth out of limbs and broth and things, and they, they dwelt in it, so it was a temporary dwelling during that feast time, and then when it was over, they would go back to their houses. But So he, what, what he's saying to them is that 
let's just build these booths and we'll have a Passover up here on the mountain in a sense. And, but spirits don't need that. Moses and Elijah were standing there in the flesh. But what kind of flesh? I don't know. It, was, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a flesh subject to sin any longer, but it wasn't their eternal flesh that they're going to have because they're not going to get that until the resurrection of Christ. And so, but they're there and they recognize them. So your loved ones who died in Christ will be recognizable to you one day when you see them in heaven. Uh, one day when you see them after the rapture, before the rapture, they'll be recognizable to you. Beyond that, it's beyond our understanding. But you will dwell eternally in a body without the curse of sin. And I will as well. What a, what a great, glorious hope that we have. You, know, say, you may say, well, I don't like my body. I used to read that about 80% of teenagers didn't like their body. Well, I can say probably about 80% of adults don't like their body either. But you'll like it after it's, after it's resurrected. You'll like it doesn't matter if your features don't change one bit. Your, your hope will be so changed, you'll like your body. Because your body will be without the curse of sin. Your body, you'll have a final understanding that you in the flesh are exactly what God wanted you to be. You're exactly the image of God that He desired for you to be. And you'll find total fulfillment in that. See, that's hard for us to grasp. Total fulfillment. We experience little snippets of fulfillment. I'm fulfilled in my marriage. I'm fulfilled in the love of my children. I'm fulfilled in, in, in my grandchildren. And, and knowing I want to see more of them and be closer to them and have more of an impact. So, but, 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 out, but outside, but what, but it's, it, that's not negative. That's all positive. But we're fulfilled in that to, to degrees. We're fulfilled in that. But one day we're going to be totally fulfilled. Totally so we can't understand that. I don't know what total fulfillment means, but we're going to be totally fulfilled. Does it mean if you play golf, you make a hole in one on every hole? You know, to me, that may sound a little boring. If you play cards, do you win all the time? Well, if you do, somebody loses. So I don't know what happens. If you play bunco, do you always roll sparkle or whatever you get? <laughs> And then Jesus goes and meets with the disciples in Galilee. You remember the story? It's in John chapter 21. I won't take the time. We won't read it this morning. But uh, he, he meets them. Peter had gone fishing. Uh, Peter said, I need a break. Let's go fishing. And some of the disciples went with him. The Lord comes on the shore and says, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. And he said, cast your net on the other side. And so anyway, Peter recognized it's the Lord. Uh, they come in, they have this great catch. The Lord is preparing breakfast for them. So he's already had some fish he's cooking. He takes some of the fish that Peter brings in and cooks that for them. And he says this, and we all know about it. Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter's very hesitant. And he, the wording is a little different. And it gets stronger as it goes on. But Peter says, I do. And the Lord said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he's saying to Peter, Peter, you're restored. You're, you're restored. So he appears to them then. That's when they had the conversation that uh, he mentions, the Lord mentions John and said he's, <laughs> that basically uh, he's not going to pass away uh, until the Lord's timing. And, or, or Peter, he told Peter how he is going to die. He's going to die on the cross. And, 
and, and, and Peter says, what about John? And the Lord said to him, not your business. That's not your business. And you know, you're, you're, that's not my business. You, I can't compare myself to you. It's not my business. It's the Lord's business and his dealing with you. And then here's the interesting thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we had skipped over this when we started, but in verse 4, Paul tells us this. Uh, verse 4, he says, buried, resurrected, third day. And then he says in verse 5, and he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So he's saying that in Galilee, Christ in his resurrected body was seen by 500 people at one time. So there was a gathering. I think he was probably teaching them. There was a gathering of 500 people who saw him. And, and, and Paul is saying many of them are still alive. You can check it out. Many of them now, 30 years later, they're still alive. They can verify that they were there, that they saw him. That's what Paul was doing in, re, in reporting this. And then he was seen by James, who would become one of the leaders of the church. We don't have an idea. We read that later on. Uh, and then he was seen by Paul himself. He, he was seen first on the road to Damascus, and then he was seen probably, according to Galatians, uh, when Paul was in the Arabian desert, was taught by the Lord himself, was taught theology about the church, because uh, Paul is the writer concerning the church, and so he, he does that then. Uh, so he's seen all these different times. And then the very last thing we'll read is in Acts chapter 1, and this is the ascension uh, of Christ um, when he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1, uh, so after the 40 days are over, of his earthly ministry, uh, he ascends, and the disciples are present when he ascends. Okay, I found Acts. Um, uh, Luke says, I made this former account until the day he was taken up, verse 2, that he through the Holy Spirit had given commandment to, to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and then being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So they'd gone back to the Jerusalem area for his ascension. And, and then he said, wait for the promise of the Father, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he said, for John truly baptized with water, you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, then when they come together, they ask him, Lord, when, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put under his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Um, and then the angel said this down in verse uh, 11. The two angels stood by, verse 10, and they said in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus, 
who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Christ ascended bodily into heaven. Christ is in heaven today at the right hand of the Father in his human body, making intercession for you and I. And one day in his human body, he's going to come back. Revelation chapter 19. And he's going to come, uh, King of kings, Lord of lords, leading an, leading an army, uh, which is us, clothed in white robes. We have, we'll have been raptured. And now we're going to come with him. Excuse me. We're going to come with him. And uh, we're not going to fight. He's going to destroy the armies gathered at Armageddon with the breath of his mouth. The sword goes out of his mouth. It's going to be a wonderful thing. So we're going to see him again in his resurrected body. We're going to see him the first time. We've seen him by faith, and one day we're going to see him by sight. Uh, The resurrection proved that. It proved it. It assured it. It is the assurance. It is our guarantee. It is our hope. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you uh, for what Christ has done. We thank you for, uh, Lord, his willingness to suffer, uh, to bear our sin, to, to go through you forsaking him. And, Lord, thank you that you have exalted him, that you have uh, proven, Lord, your love for him in the resurrection and that he has proven his love for us, uh, Lord, in the hope we have and the resurrection and the promises we have. We, we thank you. Lord, uh, we pray that as we go through this life and as this body goes through trials, and and Lord, that you would remind us uh, that we're eternal now. And and one day, uh, Lord, all the weaknesses and all the uh, trials of the flesh will be behind us and that we have the hope of eternal bliss and fulfillment that you have given to us through the resurrection. Might that be a a stabilizing force in our lives as we go through this life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you. I hope you've enjoyed the study of Mark. Uh, To tell you the truth, I don't know what we'll do next Sunday, but it'll be something from the Bible, and we'll see, okay? Uh, God bless you. See you in church.